970 WDYM 93.1 FM. Happy to be with you. Good afternoon, Nateel. How are you? Doing pretty good. I'm looking forward to this nice melting weather forecast we've got coming forward to us. Yeah, it's looking good. 30s and 40s for the remainder of the week into next week. I'm pretty pretty pleased yeah. with that. Maybe spring uh, Maybe spring has sprung. Yeah, we can't speak Knock too soon, wood. Rob. We live in North Knock Dakota. That's true. <laughs> I have seen an April blizzard before. There have been blizzards in May, okay? Yeah. And We're increased. never out of the woods in North Dakota. <laughs> we, uh, my driveway started, I, after that, we get that freezing rain and then a ton of snow on top of it, and my down-to-the-concrete driveway was, just became a lost cause very quickly. Although, uh, now I'm starting to see the concrete again, which makes me feel good. I'm one of those people who gets all anxious about my driveway not being down to concrete in, in the winter. I, I don't know. I'm anal about it. I think it's just a Midwestern male thing. I don't know. Or female. Just a Midwestern thing. I'm not even just males. Um, I don't know. I'm weird about it. Uh, all right. Coming up, uh, we're going to have Andy Kaiser on. Andy is a, a visiting fellow at the National Security Institute at George Mason University's Antony Scalia School of Law. He's going to be on uh, to talk a little bit about North Korea uh, and President Trump, which, Natil, you and I were talking about a little bit. And then coming up at 1.30, uh, we're going to have the rundown, plus your phone call, 701-293-9000, email talk at WDAY.com. Um, but right now, let's talk, well, until let's talk about Hillary Clinton. You hear what she had to say over in India? That the places that voted for her are the places moving forward? Yeah. Was that, was that the us, comment? I guess, I guess the rest of us are backwards. The, the places that voted, I believe her quote was something like, the places that voted for Trump are moving backwards, while the places that voted for her are moving Looking forwards. backwards. Looking backwards, said. that's it. Um, here's the exact, well, let's, let's read the exact quote. Uh, she says, if you look at the map of the United States, there's all that red in the middle where Trump won. Uh, I win the coastal, I win, you know, Illinois and Minnesota, places like that. I won the places that represent two-thirds of America's gross domestic product, she continued. Uh, so I won the places that are optimistic, diverse, dynamic, moving forward. Uh, and his whole campaign, Make America Great Again, was looking backwards. Now, I don't know about Unitil, but this seems this seems problematic. If, if this is the attitude, and, and maybe I, I don't want to say that this is the attitude of all Democrats, but she is the most recent national ca- candidate. Yeah, but she has been Democrats. an absolutely sore loser. And I don't think that you can extrapolate that this is the attitude of all Democrats, or even maybe the National Democratic Party, because Hillary Clinton is being a poor loser, an absolutely poor loser. She will not let this go. She needs to let this go. Or the party as a whole is never going to move forward because people like you or people, other people who are against Democrats are going to look to her and say, look what Hillary Clinton just said. Why are but we I, doing this? I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I hear this and I don't see something that's all that uncommon among Democrats. I mean, even even when I have Democratic friends here in North Dakota, when I hear them talk about North Dakota, a lot of times it kind of sounds like they don't really like North Dakota that much. I mean, they, they talk in the same way, that North Dakota is kind of a backwards place. I worry that a lot of Democrats have struggle to talk with people who are from this side of the country, and that's to their detriment. Um, some of the things that she's saying here is, that you know because we're not in these coastal areas or these blue areas that are voting democratic or voting blue 
that somehow we're we're looking backwards. You know, I I mean, I I don't I don't like that she creates this dichotomy. It's it's this sort of you're either with us or against us point of view. Because I can tell you, and and I know that not all I, I know a lot of Republicans are kind of the same way, and and talk the same way about urban areas or cult, liberal areas, uh, and and have the same sort of looking down their nose posture about that. I can tell you, I don't see it as a dichotomy. I don't see it as like an either or thing. I view the world differently than most liberals and, and Democrats do. Um, I just have a different philosophy. And I, I guess from my point of view, that's okay. I would rather work on places where I could agree with Democrats or, or places where we could find some common ground. Uh, and, and then for the rest of it, just, just work as hard as we can to just let each other live our lives the way we want to live our lives. That's, that's really all I want. You know, and, and I'm afraid that, I mean, Hillary's point of view is like you're either on Team Hillary or you're you're like part of the problem or you're you're a deplorable to, to use the, the terminology she used back during the campaign. The other thing I thought was really interesting is like Democrats, I think a lot of times like to in fact when we had uh, North Dakota House candidate Max Schneider on this program last week. One of the things Max said is he feels that the Democratic Party is still the party of the working class, the working people or whatever. Listen to what Hillary Clinton says. She says that she won. Again, this is a quote from what she said, and this was at a conference in Mumbai, India. She said, I quote, if you look at the map of the United States, uh, there's all that red in the middle where Trump won. And then she continues. I won the places that represent two thirds of America's gross domestic product. So she's proud of that. Right. And, and really, if you look at the map, yeah, that, that's right. Democrats tend to win in the very rich, affluent areas. And so, I, again, that, that hard to drive because Democrats like to tell us that they're the party for the downtrodden. Right. That they're the party for, for the poor. They're the party for the people who need a hand up. But yet here's Hillary Clinton bragging it how she won all the, the rich, densely populated areas. She won with the rich. Well, that's probably true. All the celebrities, all the billionaires, all those people, yeah, they really like Democrats these days. Once upon a time, a lot of those people liked Republicans. I guess times have changed. But if you're going to say that you're the party for the working class, if you're going to say you're the party for the poor, what about people who live in Appalachia? What about people who live in rural North Dakota, rural Minnesota? What about those people, Democrats? I mean, why are you not... Why are you so unwilling to reach out to those people? Why are you so willing to, to, to look down your nose at that part of America? That's what drives me nuts about this is, you know, I, it's, it's either agree with Hillary Clinton or I'm backwards. Come on. I mean, does that make more sense where I'm at, though, Natil? It's not that I'm saying that all. I, I think there is a sort of elitism in the Democratic Party. I think Republicans have the opposite problem. I think Republicans have become too populist. Uh, but for Democrats, it's, it seems it seems very elitist, uh, and they seem very interested in just completely alienating a, a vast geographic area of America and, the, and a lot of the people who live there. I don't know that they're attempting to alienate those people. I don't I don't think they're going out of their way to alienate them necessarily, but it's having that effect. Yeah. The other thing she said, uh, she said um, she took a shot at at females, particularly specifically white females voting for 
Donald Trump. And this is what she said. She said, quote, part of that is an identification with the Republican Party and a sort of ongoing pressure to vote the way that your husband, your boss, your son, whoever believes you should. Uh, and that this, this, by the way, is not the first time that she's made that point. Uh, she actually made a similar point back in um, September. Uh, she was speaking. Where was this at? Um, she was speaking at another conference, and she says um, that women are, are, quote, under tremendous pressure from fathers and husbands and boyfriends and male employers not to vote for the girl. Right. And so I, I, I guess Hillary's point of view being that you either vote Democratic, you vote for Hillary, uh, or you're in the thrall of the, the men in your life. And, and again, that also floors me. And, and until, I, I think I think we've actually joked about this. I didn't vote against Donald Trump uh, and I didn't vote for him because a big part of that, not the only part of it, but a big part of it was. His comments about women, it made me really uncomfortable that he would talk about women that way. And so I didn't vote for Donald Trump. Uh, I got a little sanctimonious about it after the election, only to find out that most of the women in my life had, in fact, voted for Donald Trump. Now, I don't know how in the world I I didn't influence them. In fact, I didn't vote for the guy. I thought that they weren't going to vote for the guy. Uh, and they all voted for him, which surprised the heck out of me. And I, 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 this just seems insulting. Like, I, I guess the implication here that women couldn't find their way on their own for their own set of reasons to vote for Donald Trump. It had to be that they're being influenced by the patriarchy. And that seems insulting to me. Why would she say this? I feel like there's probably a point that she's uh, that she's trying to make that she made very poorly and honestly didn't didn't actually succeed at making it all in that we've we've talked a lot about identity politics on this show and how identity politics kind of suck and I, i feel like what she was trying to say is that a lot of women may have been afraid of voting for hillary clinton because they felt like on some level were they just voting for her because she's the first female presidential candidate because she would be the first woman president is that like and you you start to you second guess yourself you think to yourself is is that the reason i'm making this decision and then you second guess yourself and maybe that influences the box you check at why i i i think it could also be a product of like identity politics backfiring right i mean in a lot of ways democrat identity politics and especially the way democratic's Democratic pursuit in democratic politics sets up white men, straight white men, as as the flipping problem, right? I mean, a lot of times, I I can tell you, I kind of feel like the enemy. When I watch some progressives talk, you know, in the realm of identity politics, I kind of feel like I'm the problem, right? I'm the enemy. And And even some extreme examples, you know, college professors and some, you know, pretty far left activists, I mean, they'll literally just come out and say, White men are the problem. And I wonder if there's not a lot of women who are looking at the white men in their lives and see them as hardworking people, see them as, as not really actually getting a lot of privilege in their life. Because you try to tell some white coal miner in Appalachia that he's had a privileged life, and you're probably going to get some laughs. And so maybe it's backfire. Maybe it's it's the Democratic messages 
white men have, have this white male privilege and women looking at the white men in their lives saying, gosh, I, I don't know how much privilege they actually have. I mean, to me, that, that speaks to a disconnect. You look at some you look at some white male farmer in rural North Dakota working his butt off every day and tell me that he's privileged. I think that's a disconnect that Democrats struggle with. So anyway, it's interesting. I will ask this. Should North Dakota Democrats have to answer for Hillary Clinton's comments the way North Dakota Republicans do? Because every time Donald Trump says something zany, the first thing everybody knows, they go to John Hoven and they go to Kevin Kramer, they go to Governor Burgum, they go to all the Republicans in the state and ask them, do you agree or disagree with the zany thing that, that Donald Trump said? And that's fair. They're all Republicans. They have to answer for that. Will Heidi Heitkamp, will Max Schneider, Ben Hansen, John Gravinger, will they have to answer for what Hillary Clinton's out there saying? I think they should have to answer the question, what do you think? 701-293-9000, email talk at WDAY.com. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Welcome back, Rob Port 970 WDY AM 93.1 FM. We're talking about Hillary Clinton's comments. And the question I asked the audience before we went to a break, it, 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 she said a couple of things. I mean, one, she said she won the parts of America that aren't going backwards. And I, I guess parts of them, like, like North Dakota, South Dakota, all of us red states, uh, we're going backwards because we didn't vote for Hillary Clinton. Uh, she also said that women out there, white women who voted for Hillary Clinton, did so uh, because they're influenced by the men in their lives. I guess the idea being that that women who voted for Trump can't make up their own minds. Uh, what do you think of the comments, first of all? And, and second of all, should North Dakota Democrats have to answer for this? Because, uh, again, and, and I think this is entirely fair. Whenever Trump says something zany, we get news articles, and it's all about you know how, how Kevin Kramer feels about it, how John Hoven feels about it, how Doug Burgum feels about it. And that's as it should be. They're members of the Republican Party. Trump is the president of the United States and thus uh, the leader of the National Republican Party. They should have to answer for that. When does Heidi Heitkamp, when does Max Schneider, Ben Hansen, John Gravinger, when do they ever have to answer for things Hillary Clinton says? You know, especially when they're out there camp- on the campaign trail distancing themselves from the Democratic Party. Why shouldn't they answer for, for what a prominent Democrat like uh, Hillary Clinton has to say? Heidi Heitkamp, by the way, endorsed Hillary Clinton during the 2016 election cycle, endorsed her in 2013, the first year of her time in the Senate. Heidi Heitkamp was an early endorser of of Hillary Clinton. I'd like to hear what she has to say about this. Someone should ask her. I'd ask her, but she never wants to come on the radio show. 701-293-9000-888-970-9329. Email talk at WDAY.com. Let's get to some calls. Uh, John, you're up first. Good afternoon, Rob. You know, I'll tell you, my wife voted for Donald Trump, and it wasn't by my influence. It was the simple fact that, like many women who voted for Donald over Hillary, was they just flat out did not trust Hillary, especially if they live in a household that has anything to do with the Second Amendment on any, you know, any level whatsoever, even just, you know, guys who hunt, and that's it. And I'll tell you, as far as Heidi goes, 
It is self-explanatory why she won't answer questions, Rob. She won't answer any hardball question. I, you know, I, I've tried to corner her how many times now on S446, which does involve fixing the next background check. I have patiently sent emails to her office, and I get absolutely zero reply aside from some muddled political mantra that has nothing to do with the subject. And I'll tell you, you know, it, 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 to me it's hilarious because there are Democrats who will come on your show, even what I used to refer to John Hoven as, I used to call him the invisible man. Even he's finally getting to the point where he starts to appear on a few more, you know, programs up and down the valley. And I'll give him credit for finally, you know, getting outside of his shell. I don't know if it's a comfort zone thing with them or what. But yeah. At, at least even he's willing, you know, to step up and answer a few hardball questions once in a while. Yeah, I would, I would like to hear Heidi. I, I and I think it's I think it's because Heidi's Heidi's staff plays hardball. If you're critical of her, her staff will be tough. I mean, they'll get in touch. They'll get in touch with people. They'll they'll try to get you taken off the air. They'll complain that you're being published. I've had them do it to me. Uh, it's I mean, they play hardball, and I think that translates into some local journalists taking a hands off approach when it comes to Heidi Heitkamp because they know if you're critical of her. They'll push back, and they will push back hard. Uh, th- thanks for the call, John. Appreciate it. Uh, oh, and I-, I will say, I have never had trouble. I-, I know Hoven gets flack for flying under the radar, and I, I-, I don't know. My experience with him, I-, I think in the last year, I've had him on probably a dozen or so times. I think once uh, he couldn't come on, and-, and we rescheduled it. So, I mean, I've, I've never had a problem booking John Hoven on the program. Um, but you're right. He does like to fly under the ro- radar. Uh, let's get to another caller. Bob, you're on. A couple minutes left. What's up? Hi. Well, I, I agree with you. The liberal press and the liberal media and the liberal radio protect all these Democrats that are running that they don't have to answer for anything the National Party says. And also, if you have any common sense at all, why would you vote for any one of these people running in as a Democrat in a major office like Congress or Senate from North Dakota, they say, oh, North Dakota values. If they get to Washington, it, it means nothing because the Democratic Party on the national scale is so far off to the left, looney tune, that they're, they're, just, they're just out there. And then why would you run the risk of voting for Heidi to get the um, Senate flipped over so that the Democrats are in charge with Schumer, who's a nut job, and the same thing with any one of the people running for Congress and flipping the House over to Nancy Pelosi. I mean, it's just ridiculous to even, I don't care how nice these North Dakota people are for running for Congress. I mean, it's just ridiculous to, to run that risk of getting the National Democrats uh, flipped over in the House and Senate. And as far as the Democrats, they are um, a party of the super rich, the super elitist, or the illegal invaders coming to our country. That's the two groups that they represent. Bob, thanks for the call. I, I think you've you've got a point in that consistently North Dakota Republicans are asked to answer for the antics of the National Republican Party. Democrats in North Dakota, a lot of times they're not. They're not held to the same standard, and they should be. What do you think? 701 888-970-9329. Email talk at WDY.com. We'll be right back after this. Don't go away.
Jack Rockport, 970 WDI AM 93.1 FM, 701-293-9000, Email talk at WDI.com. Until do you think Demo- North Dakota Democratic candidates should be asked about Hillary Clinton's comments? I don't think it's a problem to ask them about her comments, but I don't think that they need to answer for them. Well, then is it fair? Was it fair to ask North Dakota Republicans to answer for Donald Trump? Yes, I don't think it's I, I don't think it's fair to ask them to answer for Donald Trump, but I think it's fair to ask them how they feel about his comments because he is our elected president. Much in the same way that I feel like North Dakota Democrats absolutely should have been asked and should be asked about how they felt about President Obama's comments and policies and things like that, because he was the elected official and North Dakota Democrats have to work with the elected official in order to further. Why not not Hillary Clinton? Because she's not she's not the elected official. She is. In, she's still. I mean, she's still the last national. I mean, she was elected by Democrats to be their nominee. Yeah, but she was president. a nominee. She's not the president. She's not making okay. any policy. And but all these. But all the Democrats in North Dakota are associated with their party. They're part of that organization. Yeah, but they. That's like asking every North Dakota Republican to answer for the crazy child molester down in whatever southern state that was. Yeah, but but we're but I mean we're because not they're in the same party. No, that's the Roy exact Moore. argument you just. I think made. it was fair. I think it was fair to. Ask, I asked Kevin Kramer about Roy Moore. I thought Roy Moore was disgusting. I asked Kevin Kramer about him. I asked John Hoven about him. And so you ask, and but did you ex? did you have an expectation that they would have to answer for him? Yeah. Yeah, I had an expectation that they should have to make a decision about whether or not they want to be associated as fellow with Republicans with somebody like that. See, and that's crazy to me. I it's I don't think it is. It's not it's not Governor it's not I think Governor NRA, I think NRA members not, should have to explain why they they support the organization. I think Planned Parenthood members should have to explain. I mean, if you're going to associate yourself telling with your, this way, telling them that they need to be able to support the party and what the party stands for is different than saying they have to be able to answer for and support Every person that says they are a part Heidi of that Heidi party Heidi endorsed Hillary Clinton. I mean, it wasn't like a casual endorsement. I mean, she signed on to a letter urging Hillary to run in 2013. And that puts and that puts Heidi Heitkamp in a slightly different position than say Ben Hansen or other North Dakota Democrats because she very early was a proponent of Hillary Clinton and she was sponsoring Hillary Clinton, et cetera, et cetera. But Hillary Clinton is not making policy right now. All she's doing yeah. is saying some crazy things. I think that our elected officials should be a lot more focused think, on the other people making policy than the people that are off in India saying some dumb stuff. I think that Hillary Clinton is still a leader in the Democratic Party. And as such, I, I think other Democrats have to have to be willing to, to respond to that and have to open themselves up to it. Now, they won't be because there's a double standard in the press when it comes to this sort of thing. Republicans get asked about this stuff. Democrats don't. And I think I don't think that's fair. Um, here, here's the thing: because the other thing that Hillary said that we were we were talking about a little bit is the idea, and, and this is her exact quote. She said, "I quote: Democrats do not do well with white men, and we don't do well with married white women. And part of that is an identification with the Republican Party and a sort of ongoing pressure to vote the way that your husband, your boss, your son, whoever believes you should." Now, there's a there's an article out from the Washington Post, and I'm reading this in the Tickets and Press, but I think it was in the Fargo Forum, Grand Forks Herald, and everything. Um, the headline is, Studies Suggest that Clinton May Not Be Wrong on White Women Voting Like Their, their Husbands. Um, 
And this is from the article. I quote, Oregon State University professor Kelsey Kretschmar co-wrote a study examining women's voting patterns. She says, I quote, we know white women are more conservative. So when you're married to a white man, you get a lot more pressure to vote consistent with that ideology. I, I should say, we know white men are more conservative. So when you're married to a white man, you get a lot more pressure to vote consistent with that ideology. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure I'm not sure I necessarily buy into that. I mean, is it are women voting that way because they're married to white men and they're being pressured? Or are the women just conservative too? I mean, is, is it not unlikely that, that maybe married couples, couples share a lot of the same philosophies and values? I'm not a good litmus test for that. Yeah. Because my, my parents have extremely differing political views. and that, well, I'm not saying it's not, yeah. No, I, but that, that's what I'm saying is that I'm, I'm not a good litmus test for that because I grew up in a household where my mother was extremely Democratic and my father was extremely Republican, and it caused some, contra- not controversy, yeah. some conflict in the household. Well, I don't, I mean, I, I, obviously I'm a very outspoken political person. So, like, people in my family my sisters and whatnot, I mean, they disagree with me. But we talk about this stuff, you know, and they disagree with me and they vote accordingly. Um, and that's that's fine. Um, they don't always disagree with me. But, you know, I mean, the, I I look at them and I see independent people as their brother, who's obviously, a, you know, a, a very forceful voice in politics in North Dakota. They they vote the way they're going to vote anyway. I mean, I don't I, I to the extent that I influence them at all. I think it's just in. In the normal sort of, we have discussions, we talk about this stuff. Uh, I'm sure that they factor that thing, you know, the points I make into their thinking in the same way that I factor the points that they make into my thinking. But I don't think they're voting that way because I'm part of the patriarchy or their husbands are part of the patriarchy and they're just being pressured to. I think that that's, I think it's far more complex than that. And I, I, I think it's unfair to say that, that women feel pressured to vote a certain way. Especially when, by the way, the ballots are secret. Right. So, you know, I, I mean, how, how could how could you even really pressure a woman once she's in that voting booth alone? She could vote whichever way she wants. I just don't see I, I think I think that this is a way for Democrats to explain why their identity politics maybe isn't working as well as they'd like it to. I, I think I think maybe d- Democrats like to paint. The world a certain way. Um one in which, you know, identity groups from women to gay men to racial minorities on down the list um, have no place in the Republican Party. And I, I, I think I think they run into a problem when voting trends show us that, that it's, it's not quite that simple. And so they have to have some explanation for it that, that, that is something other than, hey, maybe a lot of white women are just conservative. Donald Trump, by the way, won fifty-two percent of white women. He got he got most of the vote in, in white women. Overall, with women, not so well, but with white women, fifty-two percent. Maybe a lot of those white women are just conservative, and Hillary Clinton doesn't want to own up to it. Seven zero one two nine three nine thousand eight 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 nine seven zero nine three two nine. Email talk at wday dot com, or you can tweet me to at Rob Port. We got a caller, Ken. Go ahead. What's up? I mean, you hit the nail on the head. It's 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 secret voting. So. The, you know, a woman could say, "Yeah, yeah, that 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 blowhard Trump, or, or that you know that blowhard quote, you know, just to keep the peace in the house." But then she goes into the ballot box. That's ha ha ha. I vote for who I want to. So I think what we've got here is Democrats who are are trying to square the circle. They can't imagine how a woman could vote for Trump, 
And they're not trying very hard. They're just taking the path of least resistance, which is, well, they're getting bullied into it. Because, of course, they couldn't, uh, not like Hillary, they're, they're a woman. So a woman has to vote for a woman. So all of their preconceived notions come in. I don't think there's any deep thinking about how, yeah, maybe they don't like Trump. I don't necessarily like Trump. I didn't vote for him. But I also would never vote for Hillary. So th- there's a yeah. lot of complex things that go into when you've got a binary well, choice. Right. Who, I didn't who vote, vote I didn't. I didn't vote for Trump. A lot of women I know in my life did vote for Trump, which actually surprised me because I kind of bought into this whole idea that women hated Trump because of all. Obviously, uh, you know, he's got his history with his affairs and everything and his personal life and, and the stuff in the past. Also, the way he's spoken about women. Um, I didn't think he was going to get many female votes at all. And it turned out he actually got quite a few. And I think for Democrats, that presents a problem. Or, or did, did he, I mean, again, this is this is splitting the hair, but did he get votes, or did people just couldn't stand Hillary, and he's the only other well, guy there? I think it's there. both. I don't. I don't think it's either or. I think it's a little of both. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and it's 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 complex. I mean, the the reasons why people vote the way they vote are complex, and and also maybe some some maybe some women out there do look at the well being of the men in their lives and consider that and think that Trump's policies will be better for the people that they care about. Is that such a bad thing? Is that them caving to the patriarchy? Or is that just them being normal human beings and wanting the best for the people around them? And if Democrats really wanted to understand, really all they'd have to do is just, you know, I was in Valley City last weekend working a show, going to a bar for a, a burger, and here's a youngish woman. I, I wouldn't peg her over 25. Trump, make America great t-shirt. And I'm thinking, yeah. wow, you know, now. If a Democrat wanted to know what was going on, they could just saddle up and say, "Hey, you know, um, hey, can I talk to you for a minute?" I mean, you know, well, maybe maybe they could <laughs> maybe they tell could me stop, about you. You know, maybe they could stop talking about like our part of the country as though we're backwards. Yes, right. And 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 again, I like it or not, and and Atil, I think this goes to your point. Like it or not, Hillary Clinton is still something of a spokeswoman for the de- National Democratic Party for the Democratic cause. That's how people are going to perceive her. Perception is reality in politics. She's saying stuff like this. I think it behooves Democrats to get out in front of it and say, no, we don't believe that. We don't believe places in the world like North Dakota are backwards. Hillary Clinton doesn't speak for us. I'd like to hear that message from Democrats. Now, will we hear it? I don't know. Ken, thanks for the call. Appreciate it. Got to take a break. 701-293-9000, Email talk at WDAY.com. We'll be right back after this. Don't go away. See the dogs running with the wing and a question and my shivering voices. Thirty thousand feet above the city where I fell in love with you. And the vacant country skyline brings an urban lullaby that still rings true. When I passed you on the street that day, should've let that red sky fly away like any chance I had. Welcome back, Rapport 970 WDY AM 93.1 FM. Uh, coming up in hour two, we're going to be talking with Andy Kaiser. He's a uh, He was a chief of staff to former House Intelligence Committee Chairman Mike Rogers, uh, a former Deputy National Security Advisor to the Trump Administration Transition Team, currently a visiting fellow at the National Security Institute at George Mason University's uh, Scalia Law School. Uh, so he's going to be on the program. We're going to talk about him, uh, or uh, Donald Trump and North Korea. Uh, is Trump competent? <laughs> what? What is? Uh, it's always funny to deal when you have to question. Like, like is Trump succeeding because he's competent, or is he just? <laughs> I don't know. 
I don't know. Are things just happening? Good things just happening. I don't. I think it's a valid question to ask. Uh, but anyway, we'll finish up our discussion here about uh, Hillary Clinton's comments over in India. Steve's got a call. What's up, Steve? Yeah, what a worthless study. The one you're talking where they decided to check how many women voted a certain way because that's where their husband voted for Trump. Well, what about the opposite side of the coin? How many men that voted for Hillary had a wife that voted for Hillary? Yeah. And, you know, why, why break it down? Well, white women voted the way their husbands did. Well, how many black women voted the way their husbands did? How many Asian women? You know, what a worthless well, study. I, you know, and, and listen, not all not all couples agree politically, but it, it, it wouldn't surprise me if, if a lot, maybe even most, have a lot of shared values, shared philosophies, well, shared worldviews that would lead them to generally kind of vote for the same politicians. Yeah, that was going to be another one of my points. That's one reason my wife and I were married is because we share similar views. It's a peaceful household. I don't tell her what to think. She doesn't tell me what to think. We just happen yeah. to think alike. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. There's maybe something in that that attracted you uh, you two kids to together once upon a time. Uh, and that's a, that's a good thing. Also, there's nothing wrong with disagreeing with your partner either, by the way. I mean, there's, um, there's nothing wrong with that sort of relationship. But... Uh, you know, I, I guess the thing, I guess I, I don't like the idea that, you know, we, we find a correlation between how white women vote and how their husbands voted, and we suggested, well, it must be a certain way, right? It must be the husbands pressuring the wives or influencing the wives in some way. And I think that that's, I think that that's unfortunate. I think it's belittling to those women. Um, and it may just be that those women, for, for reasons that are complicated, just like, uh, you know, voting decisions we all make are complicated. Uh, for their own complicated decisions, a lot of them, 52% of them in 2016, chose to vote for Donald Trump. Okay. You know, may, maybe maybe instead of Democrats assuming they know why that happened, maybe they should try finding out why that happened. What, why is it that 52% of white women decided they wanted to vote for Trump? They might find something that might make their party better and more appealing to people in, uh, in, in this part of the country where all its deplorables live. I would think that, you know, women would be a... Uh, would be offended by that because what's Hillary saying? She's saying, you know what? If you don't see it my way, you're not much of a woman. That's basically what she's selling the females of America. Yeah, and I, I think there's a part of it too, where and you see a lot of that. I mean, I, I talk with, um, I have friends of mine who are Republicans who are uh, racial minorities, um, some Native Americans, some some African Americans, and they hear that a lot that, that somehow. You know, their votes for Republicans or their support for Republican politics generally uh, are somehow illegitimate. Like they're they're being like race traitors or, or you know, um, I have an African-American friend who's, who's told me, you know, he, he gets called like an Uncle Tom. I mean, just just ugly, ugly stuff like that. And and again, the, the belief is that somehow it these can't just be intelligent individuals for reasons that are their own have chosen to support Republicans. Um, as opposed to, to fitting into this sort of and, – and again, this is one of the things I hate about identity politics is because it presumes that you have to see the world a certain way and you have to vote a certain way because of your gender or your skin color or your sexual orientation, and I think that's bogus. You are an individual, uh, and you're allowed to make decisions, and those decisions may run against the grain of identity politics, and that's okay. Steve, thanks for the call. Appreciate it. 701-293-9000-888-970-9329. Email talk at WDAY.com. Just a couple minutes left. Uh, we got a caller. Bob, got to be real quick, Bob. What's up? 
Yes, I just love it. I hope Hillary stays out here, out there like that, and run, keeps running her mouth. She's telling all all the women and the Republican women that they're just nothing but weak women. So, you know, more power to you, Hillary. Keep going. I love to hear it. Thanks for the call, Bob. Appreciate it. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I I think it does reveal. I think Hillary's cl- comments do reveal something that at least some Democrats believe. Not all Democrats, by any stretch of the imagination, any more than than all Republicans are Roy Moore supporters down in Alabama. I mean, I don't believe that's true either. But I do think I do think Democrats have, as evidenced by the fact that not of them get not a lot of them get elected in places like North Dakota, do struggle to connect to people here. And and maybe instead of being dismissive of people in this part of the world, they ought to try reaching out. Uh, Andy Kaiser coming up next is the Rob Report. Hour two, straight ahead. Don't go away. Right here on 970 WDY AM 93.1 FM. Going to talk about President Donald Trump and what's going on in North Korea. Kind of a stunning turn of events out of North Korea. Uh, if you want to join the program, 701-293-9000, is a toll-free number. You can also email talk at WDY.com or tweet me at Rob Port. Uh, here to talk with me about it is... Andy Kaiser, he was a, a chief of staff to former House Intelligence Committee Chairman Mike Rogers. Uh, he's a former Deputy National Security Senior Advisor uh, to the Trump Transition Team. Uh, he's currently a visiting fellow at the National Security Institute at George Mason University's Scalia Law School. Uh, Andy, welcome to the program. Thanks for your time. Yeah, Rob. Thanks for having me on. Uh, is, is stunning the right word for, for what's going on in North Korea? I mean, it seems like a really big deal, but a lot of us are not experts in this sort of thing but it sure seems like a change from what we've seen over gosh the last couple of decades from north korea yeah i think that's right maybe going even back to the 50s uh no of course no american president's ever met with the leader of the north um but you know i think the last 14 months has been one of first uh here in washington in a lot of ways uh from you know calling somebody a little rocket man to uh you know, really, uh, I think more impactfully comparing the size of buttons, I think, on social media is <laughs> comparing also, the size uh, of buttons. That was definitely a new one. I don't think that happened back in the Eisenhower days. No. Um, but uh, yeah. So uh, but, but I think what's new policy wise is, is really, you know, taking maximum pressure to the regime and the surrounding nations and then refusing to relent even even with these promise of talk. So in the past, we would have given something to get them to come to the table. Um, you know, this this president and this administration didn't do that this time, and I do think that's a change. Is it? I, I think for a lot of Americans, a lot of times the most visible the most visible messaging we get from our president is is Twitter, for, for better or worse. I mean, not just the fact that we can all access it directly for ourselves and follow him and get the updates uh, directly. But also because everything he tweets gets reported on endlessly. And so we all know what he was tweeting, as you mentioned, calling, you know, the, the North Korean um, dictator, uh, little rocket man, 
uh, comparing the size, of, you know, just kind of belittling him on Twitter. Is that, I mean, when you talk about maximized pressure, is that really part of it? Because I, th- I think when this happened in North Korea, a lot of us, I think there a lot of uh, the reaction from a lot of people was, well, I guess what President Trump was doing on Twitter was working. But I, I got to imagine, there's got to be other things also going on behind the scenes other than the Trump, other than President Trump just posting on Twitter. Yeah, I, I mean, think how, that's how much, right. I how, mean, much, the, how much credit yeah, the, should, should we give the, the Twitter posts, I guess, is my question. Sure. Um, you know, I, I, I have to think it could it could play a role, but I I think probably the most important way for your listeners to, to look at it is we tried a conventional approach with North Korea for, uh, you know, 60 years, and it kind of led us to where we are. So, you know, if, if I were writing the policy recommendations for the president, I probably put, wouldn't put on there, you know, compare the size of buttons and call him Little Rocket Man, but, you know, maybe an unconventional approach um, is, is wise, given we tried the conventional way multiple administrations and, and just have kind of gotten nowhere. Okay, so what what happens now? I, I mean, and a lot of people, certainly in the wake, uh, in particular, I think Rachel Maddow's comments on MSNBC uh, saying that perhaps President Trump should, should reflect on why no other president has, has chosen to meet with North Korea. What are the risks for the president of the United States meeting with with the, with the dictator uh, and, and reader, really in some ways a sort of cult leader from North Korea? I mean, what's, what, what are the risks here for the president doing this? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest risk is you've uh, raised his stature to one where he, he gets to meet with the most powerful leader on the planet. Um, but again, we've, we've tried it a different way. And, and one thing that does make sense to me is, um, in a regime like that, as we've seen, there's really only one person who has any influence on the policy of the country. So for the secretary of state or the national security advisor or the defense secretary to go meet with a counterpart, isn't really all that productive if that individual has very little impact on, on the policy, uh, at the end of the day. So, those two things make sense to me why why this might work. The other risk is that um, clearly the administration is well aware of this, that it, it very likely could just be a delay tactic where um, every day that goes by, of course, uh, Kim and his regime are improving their missile technology and their nuclear weapons um, in an effort to put greater threat on, on the U.S. And, and our allies. Well, I mean, to me, that sounds very scary. I mean, you say a delay tactic. I mean, that that also. I mean, if they're delaying, that that also would would seem to. I mean, the logical conclusion for that for for, for countries like America, world leaders, is is that eventually we're going to have to do something about North Korea, right? I mean, if they're continuing to improve their weapons technology, uh, their nuclear weapons technology, as well as the you know the the missile technology to to deliver a nuclear weapon, that's something we've got to nip in the bud eventually, right? I mean, eventually something's got to get. We can't just be the status quo forever, can it? Yeah, I mean, you, you have two real uh, macro choices, right? You either you either try to impact the, the policy that uh, has them as a nuclear power, or you learn to try to live with it, right? So we've... You know, people might raise the point where, you know, China has nuclear weapons and other U.S. adversaries. Um, you know, I, I think that's pretty uh, flawed, uh, pretty flawed argument. Um, but right at the end of the day, if you're if you're not willing to live with a nuclear North Korea, which they passed that threshold in the 2000s, um, then what are you going to do about it? Obviously, I think all of us would prefer 
you know, diplomacy over war. And if those are the two options, let's let's run the diplomatic channel, you know, fully to ground before we think about doing anything else that gets some of our young people killed. Do you, by the way, 701-293-9000, email talk at WDAY.com. Talking with Andy Kaiser, who is an advisor to the Trump transition team, also a visiting fellow at the National Security Institute at uh, George Mason University's uh, Scalia Law School. Um, Andy, is, is this, and, and just going back to the Twitter thing and, and just how we've been using the word unconventional f- for that, and, and I, I can't think of a better word, but it, it just it's a word that just feels... Um, not quite sufficient, maybe to, to describe President Trump's approach to this. Uh, I, I think a lot of people are wondering. I mean, is 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 this really Trump being competent, or is he just blundering into this? Yeah, you know, you hear that sort of uh, debate uh, buried, bantied about, um, you know, on the news media. You know, I'm I'm not sure though. You know, I will say the guy is one of the most successful people. Um, you know, in our country, obviously became you know, fairly elected leader of the president of the United States. So he clearly knows what he's doing in some regard, and he's connecting with people in some regard. So sometimes, you know, his his style isn't isn't one that, that I might embrace. But, um, you know, I think folks, clearly the country was ready for for something different. And, and boy, did they, uh, did they send that person here to D.C. for sure. <laughs> we got a caller. Matt, go ahead, Matt. What's up? Hey, I... Uh... I think you guys might be onto something there, but uh, just a, a non-conventional way to, to deal with this, because, you know, I just look at the environment, even even politically in, in this country, everything is topsy-turvy. I mean, if you would have told me that the Democrats today are uh, taking the most hawkish stance on Russia uh, and North Korea that I've ever seen in my lifetime. I mean, I grew up in an, in an age where Ronald Reagan was the villain in Soviet-U.S. relations. Um, not the, the Soviet premier, you know, when we said that we should engage um, communists and dictators, and, and that was how you brought freedom to their people. Um, you know, Jimmy Carter was hailed for getting rid of U.S. nuclear weapons and just taking the word for it from the Soviets that they were getting rid of theirs when they actually weren't, and we were okay with that. Um, it's just a topsy-turvy world, and I, maybe a non-conventional way of dealing with it is appropriate now. Yeah, I mean, I, that's that's really kind of the point I think both you and I are making, Andy, is it just seems like, Trump is so different. Maybe he's got the North Koreans spooked. Yeah, he might. It's it's real hard to tell with with uh, this regime. I mean, it's probably the most you know, or is the most closed uh, society in in the whole uh, world, right? So it's you know, and we only have so so much insight into it. Um, but clearly, um, either the the pressure, the humiliation, the or both all the above, um, you know, is, is leading to a place where he at least feels squeezed enough to, um, you know, to be willing to suspend his testing, for example, to um, allow, uh, you know, he said he wouldn't uh, object to U.S.-South Korea uh, military exercises, which is, is a pretty big deal. And again, I think the most important thing is the U.S. didn't give anything up um, to get him to the table. It's, you know, uh, you know, as, as laid out, the scenario is one that's very favorable, which is, hey, I'd like to talk to the president about of the United States about denuclearizing the peninsula, which has been sort of our policy goal uh, going back some 20 years almost. Yeah, well, I mean, I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, what when we get through all this, I mean, A, how likely is, is a meeting actually to happen? And B, 
if a meeting does happen and, and we come out of it, uh, well, I mean, what, what, is, what does a big win look like for the United States? I think a huge win would be any sort of path um, that gets North Korea below a nuclear threshold state. So you have a number of countries actually around the world, including some U.S. allies like Japan, where they clearly uh, maintain the ability to produce nuclear weapons but have none. So um, in sort of national security parlance, they can they can turn the key and become a nuclear threshold state uh, tomorrow, but they're under that threshold today. So in that scenario, you know, uh, no one has to worry about Japan launching a, a, a nuclear weapon at anyone. Um, so if we could get them to a place where they're working towards that and it's verifiable, and actually this is a good word the administration is using, ir- irreversible, um, meaning they can't just go back tomorrow, um, you know, I think that would be a, a huge outcome. As to the location, that's, that's going to be dicey. It's got to be somewhere uh, where both sides can claim some neutrality, I think. Uh, well, Andy, thanks for your time today. Certainly appreciate it, uh, and uh, good luck out there. You bet, Rob. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. That's, uh, that's Andy Kaiser. Uh, like I said, he was an advisor to the Trump transition team, also a visiting fellow at the National Security Institute at George Mason University's Scalia Law School. I'm Rob Port. We'll be right back after this. Don't go away. Welcome back, Rob Port 970 WDY AM 93.1 FM, 701-293-9000, 888-970-9329, email talk at WDY.com. You can uh, tweet me, too, at Rob Port. Yeah, by the way, tomorrow, coming up tomorrow, we're going to have on uh, North Dakota State Treasurer Kelly Schmidt. Uh, Natalia, remember we were talking about uh, there was an idea. We actually had uh, State Representative Roscoe Striley on the program talking about an idea for the Legacy Fund. Uh, to use it as a revolving loan program, portion of it, as a revolving loan program to fund infrastructure. Yeah. Did we ever get uh, word back from Roscoe Striley on oh. uh, the road issue with that? We did. After the show, and here, I can look up what he actually sent me. Because I'm still um, very curious about that. Because he, the, what he had proposed was talking about things like uh, yeah. public waterworks, sewer projects, things like that. But roads were missing from it, and we weren't sure yeah. why. He said, actually, there's, there's already an infrastructure fund. Uh, and the main large-scale projects uh, left to do are, are related to – basically, he said a lot of them are, are, like, federally funded, and there's already funds set up for that. And so they didn't want – because those are – there's already, like, a process in place for handling a lot of, like, roads specifically, and a lot of it's tied up with the federal government. They wanted to focus this more on areas that weren't already addressed. Um, and the same with, like – because I've heard people bring up, like, schools – uh, like like school bonds and stuff like that, school infrastructure bonds. Uh, and again, I, I think the answer to that is there's already like funds in place for that. Um, this this is more aimed at addressing the sorts of projects that all don't already have that sort of thing available. All right, I, I, I think is the answer for it. now. Now that being said, I, I think when we discussed with Roscoe, you know, the, the coalition of lawmakers behind this. I think we're very much open to expanding the scope of it. I mean, oh, yeah, if, that's, yeah. if that's what it takes to get it done. It's not like they're saying, we don't want to do these other things. 
I think that they just focused it a certain way, kind of based on what they have. But I, I think they're very much open to amending that. Anyway, the point of bringing it up now is State Treasurer Kelly Schmidt, uh, whose office actually handles not the investments, but they handle the, the transfers of funds into the into the legacy fund. Uh, she says she's opposed to the idea. Um, she's been out there saying she doesn't necessarily like it. Uh, she's a Republican as well, by the way. Uh, anyway, she's going to be on the program tomorrow uh, to talk about it. So we'll have her on. Uh, and also Congressman Kramer, I I think, should be returning. He's missed the last two weeks of um, of our, our open phone segment with him. Uh, obviously, his son has been, has been ill. Um, I haven't heard yet confirmation that he's going to be on tomorrow, but you know, certainly going through kind of a, a, a rough, a rough, a rough uh, set of couple of weeks for his family. So um, hopefully we'll have him on tomorrow, but we'll we'll see. Seven zero one two nine three nine thousand eight 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 nine seven zero nine three two nine. Email talk at wday dot com. Uh, we talked in the first hour about Hillary Clinton's comments over in uh, over in India, talking about how. You know, I guess the parts of the country that she won are the ones moving forward. Uh, the parts of the country that didn't vote for her are the ones moving backwards. Uh, and also that white women voted for Trump because of their husbands and brothers and sons. And I don't know. Pretty offensive comments, I think, overall. Uh, and my question was, is why don't Democrats have to answer for that? I mean, when every time Trump says some zany thing, we're all asking Republicans about it. Uh, why not ask Democrats? Now, Natil draws a distinction between Trump and Hillary because Trump's the president and Hillary didn't get elected. So I guess that, but I, I still think she's a spokesperson for the party. Natil, I mean, like it or not, the Clintons are still very central of, very central to Democratic politics in America, right? You're not wrong. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a fair point to make. At the same time, I think that that's, that's a discussion that I think the the people that are running the party need to be having. Yeah. And I, again, would continue to prefer our elected officials to be concerned with policymaking and positions of other elected officials that affect policy. I mean, but, but Trump, but Trump's, you know, uh, grabbing women. I never know how much of that I could say on the air. And that, but uh, that was that was something that came out when he was a. That a didn't candidate. have anything to do with policy. No, but though. that came out when he was a candidate, and we were All very right. we were very clearly at that point in time asking Democrats and Republicans both about their candidates. That's not something that we continue to ask Republican representatives about at this point in time. We do ask yeah. them about a lot of the things that he tweets, but that's because a lot of the things that he tweets have some, you know, implication on possible policy. Yeah, we have uh, we have an email that came in from from Scott. He says uh, if a Democrat supporter Heidi has to explain uh, has to explain support a loser like Hillary, then Rob, you being a Republican, how could you endorse and support Republican Party leader Bobby Stumbo, who was arrested for having sex with a five year old boy? Well, uh, first of all, I can tell you, uh, I had no idea who Bobby Stumbo was until this emailer mentioned it. Apparently, he was like a local Republican official. Uh, who was in fact arrested for pedophilia? Um, I think that's pretty gross. But I, I think comparing somebody like Bobby Stumbo to Hillary Clinton is a different matter. I mean, I'm not saying that every Democrat in North Dakota has to offer for every crazy thing some local, you know, district party official, you know, Democratic Party official in Florida or California or someone like that says. But when it's Hillary Clinton, 
who was on the ballot in North Dakota in 2016, the last national candidate for the Democrats, when she's out there making comments like this, I feel like Democrats, and especially Heidi Heitkamp, should have to answer for it because it's it's an important dynamic in the 2018 election. I mean, we're watching these Democrats. You know, we've had all three of the Democratic House candidates on this program, uh, and all three of them have talked about how they want to work with Trump and they're, they're independent-minded and the National Party's positions are not necessarily their positions, and that's fine. I understand, but that... They're doing that because they're what the National Party stands for is an important part of their campaign. And, and so they're taking positions on that because they understand that it's important. And, and I think they should have to continue to take positions on it when somebody like Hillary Clinton's speaking out. And I think especially Hillary or, uh, Heidi Heitkamp, who was a big early supporter of Hillary Clinton, who endorsed her back in 2013, although got so much pushback from the Bernie Sanders wing of her state party uh, that she ultimately didn't cast her superdelegate votes at the National Convention. Did you know that, Natil? I did not. No, she didn't cast them. uh, Because there was actually uh, the the Democratic state delegation, the North Dakota delegation to the Democratic National Convention, like passed a, some of them passed, you know, they'll sign on to a letter basically criticizing Heidi for not supporting Bernie Sanders, who won who won their their primary vote here. Um, and she was going to vote for Hillary Clinton, ended up not even casting her superdelegate votes. So a lot of food fighting going on on the left these days. A lot of food fighting going on on the right these days. There's food flying all over the place. We'll come back with a rundown. This is the Rob Report, 970 WDY AM 93.1 FM. Don't go away. The Rob Report. The Rob Report. On 970 WDAY. The Rundown. What do we got for headlines today, Natil? Oh, so much cool stuff out there today. Say hello to well, Calm down. The, the new flying taxi from a secretive startup funded by Google's Larry Page. Yeah. You know, I'm starting. I, I mean, the it, it's, here. <laughs> I, like, I want to get excited about this stuff. But it seems like we, we get a lot of, like, we get all amped up over stuff that might not be scalable. Oh, how could you, know, you like, not like, be so- excited about this? I mean, don't you think that for the people that, you know, were looking at the Wright brothers as they were flying their first planes out in Kitty Hawk were like, this is ridiculous and it's never going to be scalable? And now we're flying millions of people across the planet every day? Maybe. I, here's, here's, here's my problem with this is like like the self-driving cars to me make sense you know particularly in that you know you look at like the long-haul trucking situation like there's there's to me there's a very obvious utility for that right and and so i to me i look at a lot of the technological innovations and i ask how often are people going to use this right so a lot of stuff like like ride sharing obviously there was a lot of room to improve how we were doing like the the ride for hire situation like we can improve over what taxi cabs are doing so uber and lyft etc came in and, and they're doing a great job um self-driving cars you know I, I think the long-haul trucking situation there's an obvious application for that what's the obvious application for a flying taxi it's about getting people from one place to another more quickly i mean you've got i i feel like the general thought process here is that we're going to have a like the the top level 
flight paths that are for your big Boeings and things like that that are flying lots of people okay. from L.A. to to New York. And you've got this sort of like mid-level where they're talking about like flyways, which would be like highways, slightly up further from the ground where you could be transporting goods faster. You could be transporting transporting people faster across cities or even see, across like, the like, state. I could see like with commutes. I mean, if you could create a situation where somebody could live in Jamestown and then like commute to Fargo. Very to rapidly. Work. Absolutely. Very rapidly. That would be, I, okay. that would be well, so that, good for North Dakota. Yeah, well, it would be great. Well, it'd be great for rur- for rural America generally. I mean, I, a lot of people want to live in rural America. Rural living is wonderful. The problem is a lot of people don't because of things like commutes, and because, because it's of- really hard to get a, a good paying job without that commute. Right. So you know, you don't have to drive. You don't have to drive four hours round trip daily uh, to get into where the jobs are. So I mean, yeah, it, it's potentially big. What about this innovation? I mean, because. To me, in order to do that, it's got to be cheap. It's got to be cheap. And it's got to be fast. I, I got to. It's got to be something I could use every day to like commute. I mean, what what about this allows that? Well, the the problem right now is that they haven't really reached that particular point. It um it it's all electric, so it's not going to consume additional fossil fuel resources, which is probably a good thing yes, as far will. as like airline. Yes, it will. With with all the natural gas coming online, yes, it will. Okay, well, if if they if they want to start running it on natural gas, that's fair. But if it's probably not going to mess with the cost of um, oil consuming products like planes and cars. Your your okay. gasoline probably isn't going to be affected. It's going to it's, it. it's going to it's probably going to make coal more relevant again. I mean, the more the more we switch to electrical, that we we keep coal relevant longer. The the problem with all of that discussion is that this is still pretty far away from that because there's there's no regulation or pathway forward for this type of thing yet because they're they're not looking to like this isn't the type of aircraft that's going to be flying at the same level as um a a commercial airliner piloting people from orlando to houston it's it's a whole different ball game and that's causing some concern because it's it's a gray area right now there aren't regulations and that stuff's got to be worked out it's fun to think about. I don't know if I'm just souring on the tech industry generally. I think you're just sour. Uh, maybe. Uh, I, I I think I'm just I'm just getting a little. I, I think some of this stuff's a little pie, little pie in the sky. No, the future is here. The future is here, Rob. All right. All right. <laughs> What's next? Uh, this is not the future is here. Best Buy and other retailers are using your returns against you. Did you know that? In that they're they're tracking how often a certain customer returns things. Yes, every time you return a purchase to Best Buy and some other retail giants, they're tracked. Those returns are tracked by a company that has the power to override the actual store's policy and can refuse to return your money. There is. I, a, I'm a, I imagine you have to meet like some sort of criteria. Or yeah, some sort there, of a there's pattern. a there's a service called Retail Equation that scores your shopping behavior out there, and it will impose limits on the amount of merchandise you can return. Uh, what's so bad about that? Uh, that's that seems like a reasonable thing. I and I I say this. I used to be a retail store manager. People <laughs> abuse returns, I, and I think for people that abuse returns, that's that's probably a good thing. But it does. Put people in a bit of a lurch if they get, you know, suckered into a, a bad product. Like, what yeah. was the what was the phone that um, 
had battery battery exploding problems. It was one of the Samsungs, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, like, what if you ended up in a case like that where you had to return four or five different phones? Well, obviously, I mean, I, 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 to me, it's going to hinge on the criteria, right? Like, if it's if it's somebody who just habitually buys things and then returns them, like, are they just you're not running a rental service, right? Where you get to rent the product for a while and then yeah. return it. You're not uh, you're not leasing that. the product. If you're leasing if the product, if they're denying, if they're like, if you get a product that's like going to explode or that like is malfunctioning, then they should always return that. They should always return that, right? I, I never had a problem returning products that were mal- like they bought them and they just they malfunctioned. Fine, you know, I'll do that all day long. Um, my problem was the people who would like buy clothes and then wear the clothes and then want to return the clothes, and it's like, no, we are not a clothing rental store. You bought it, you own it. That's fair. That's how it goes. Um, you know, it's just so. Yeah, I, I mean, again, I, I think I think stores should always stand behind their products. I think they should always return goods that malfunction. I don't have a problem with identifying patterns of customers who just constantly return everything. Um, you know, I, I think I think particularly big national chains, you know, could probably save a lot of money by zeroing in on those customers and limiting their ability to return things. I, I think. To me, it's a smart use of the data they're collecting. All righty, I'm on board with that. I I can get on board it's, with I, that. I can't. It's it's my it's my former uh, retail store manager <laughs> bias coming out. <laughs> I I used to have to handle all those. I I hate it. I get called up, Rob, to the counter. Got to return a approve <laughs> a return. I hated doing it. See, I, mean, I was, was I was no... low level management when I was in retail, so there was always somebody above me. And if there was nobody yeah. above me in the store at that point in time, I'd say, I managed sorry, the you, store. You need like, the, the store only people manager. Above me were like the like the chain owners, and um, yeah, not 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 the most fun part of the job, I'll tell you. Handling returns. <laughs> What's next? Elon Musk continues to try to both make me want to go to Mars and dissuade me from going to Mars, but it won't yeah, work. He's <laughs> another one. Elon Musk says nerves. that. Uh, Elon Musk warns that the first travelers to Mars may stand a good chance of dying. Well, give him give him points for being honest. I know, right? I mean, I the, mean, it's 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 actually pretty exciting because they're talking about um, his his company is planning on testing the successor to the rockets that they used to push the car past Mars next year already. Wow! So they're they're iterating fast on this, and they are making fast fast progress. Good. And so this idea of, like, he, he says that there, his exact quote was, we're building the first ship, the first Mars or interplanetary ship right now. And I think we'll be able to do short flights, short up and down flights, probably in the first half of next year. Like up to orbit and down. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Not to like Mars and back. But okay. he, but that came, that comes with this idea that, his company is now actually seriously thinking about the first people they're going to be sending to Mars. Well, you and, and I, you and I have, are probably going to die. You and I have talked, and I'm, I'm a firm believer that, that government has probably taken us about as far as they can as being the leader in space exploration. I think it's time to let the capitalists in. Uh, the cap, and, and the capitalists are in. I mean, they've been in for a while. Um, and I, I think that's a good thing. But also in commercializing this, I think you just got to be straightforward with the purchasing. Like if you if you're the first person to buy tickets on the Mars mission, um, you're a pioneer, right? I mean, you're like the first people who came west. Um, there's a good chance you could die. Uh, you know, we've never done this before. We can't 
our guarantees for safety are going to be limited. Um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with just being straightforward about that. Just just being, um, just being absolutely straightforward about that. Yeah, and I still want to go. Yeah, <laughs> I, uh, I still want to be on that ship. I don't know. I don't. I don't know if. Uh, I don't know if I want to be there. Oh my god! I can't. To to just imagine going going back to our first story. Like part of my opposition, uh, not opposition, but part of my skepticism of like fly. I don't like flying <laughs> that much. I don't. I don't necessarily care for flying, but I love space and the idea of being one of the first people to colonize another world. I know it would be. It would be hard. It would be insanely difficult. I would probably die at fifty. But God, wouldn't it be worth it? Wouldn't it be worth it? To be like one of the first people to like orbit Mars? To be up there, to have seen that, to have furthered the human race that way? That would be something. Gosh. Although if you if you bought the ticket, you're the passenger. I mean, other than I guess you're you're part of the commercialization of it, but it's not like you're Neil Armstrong, right? I mean <laughs> Well, no, but I be, you'd still be one of the first people on Mars. Your cargo. Well, you know, I guess in a way, but once you're, <laughs> once you're out there, you've got to do all the work to get stuff set up and running. That's true. Yeah, I guess that's true. So, um, <laughs> no, quick, quick in my a, dreams. It's, it's an amazing thing and it's moving so quickly and I am, I am happy about that. All right. What's next? Uh, well, you heard about the NRA, NRA TV that most people probably didn't know about until it became controversial. I am similarly going to feel that way about Scientology TV, which has now launched and says, we're not here to preach to you. Can you imagine, like, how, honestly, how how many people really want to watch Scientology TV? <laughs> it's a point? new network that uh, premiered on Monday evening with four, four original programs and an hour-long launch special introduced by the church leader, uh, uh, David, and I can never pronounce his last name. Miss Cabbage. Miss Cabbage. And he, they, they say that they're they're not there to preach or convince or convert you. They just want to show you Scientology. Now, I think a lot of us look at this and we're thinking, who is still getting suckered into Scientology at this point? I mean, especially who's, who's when you hear all the horror in? stories of people right. trying to get out of it. And now, now I, I say that the other day and i'm 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 not a like i'm a cord cutter right so i'm i was streaming something mm-hmm. um i think it was on it was on one of the streaming services on my roku i forget which one but one of the ones that has ads right and i'm i'm streaming it and an ad pops up for this guy selling me blessed water right <laughs> like this televangelist dude <laughs> peter popoff was his name <laughs> peter is still around like he was busted <laughs> way back when using because like he was doing the whole thing where he would come up and he would like know things like he would he would do faith healing and he would like know things about your your whatever uh, and they actually busted him using like a hidden earpiece and his wife would be like feeding him information about uh. the people while it was up like he was busted years ago doing that but that guy's still around and selling people's packets of, of blessed water that are supposed to improve their careers and improve their health and everything else, which was just there's still people in the world that fall for that. And he's that probably that sort richer of than you and me will ever be. Making that sort of marketing effective. There's still dummies out there who are getting taken in by this stuff. So I don't know. We can make light of Scientology doing this, but Sadly, they'll, it's probably, prob- 
it's probably They'll probably hook some people. Yeah, They'll absolutely. probably hook some people. All right, let's wrap it up. <laughs> You're listening to AM 970 WDAY 93.1 FM. This is The Rob Report. And that's The Rundown. Welcome back, Rob Port, 970 WDY, AM 93.1 FM, 701-293-9000, 888-970-9329, talk at WDAY.com. Few minutes left, Jay Thomas show straight ahead. You're going to want to stay tuned for that. Uh, Nathil, during the rundown, uh, we were talking about the, the flying, basically flying taxis, right? Yeah, and yep. Chris emailed in what I think is a very astute point. He asks, would flying personal transport potentially create a lack of accessible services for those unable to afford it. And I think it's a really interesting question because it's, it's kind of something that happened in the past where we saw the rise of like commuter railroads and, and, and the commute, right? Automobiles mm-hmm. and everything. People able to, able to get out, like continue to work in urban areas, but live outside them in the suburbs, right? I mean, that's where that term comes from is the suburban areas around urban areas. And then people commute from the suburbs into the urban areas. Um, White flight is a term for that, right? Where where the white people left, and and, and kind of I mean, so so there, there's been a lot of that going on, and so I, I guess maybe that's a fair question. Is this tech? I mean, is that one of the risks of this sort of technology? Or are people- I'm not sure. I'm not sure that it would pose the same sort of risk um, because it it seems like something that would be being used to turn existing commutes shorter. Where, you know, somebody who's making a 45-minute commute right now can still continue to make that 45-minute commute. We, this particular, but 45 minutes is going to take you a lot longer. Well, I mean, yeah. It could take you a lot farther, excuse me. 45 minutes could take you a lot farther, yeah, if you had access to, to this type of service. I don't know. It, and it would depend on the cost. It would depend on if it was cost-effective or if it was yeah. just for, like, the super rich and the super elite. I don't think that's Google doesn't seem like a company that wants to develop something for the super rich and the super elite, as we've seen evidenced with um, their propensity for taking gigabit Internet to places that wouldn't otherwise have it with Google Fiber. I I just I don't see them using this as a like a super rich and elite transport service. I see it as something that they would want to be making accessible to as many people as possible i mean because i i think it's interesting because we spent we spent a lot of time and a lot of tax dollars on like urban planning and actually one of the big arguments i've had with governor burgum and his main street initiative a big part of which is the idea of having denser communities in order to drive up tax base uh and drive down infrastructure costs and that makes a lot of sense except when you reach the point that human beings are individuals who don't necessarily want to live in dense areas, right? I mean, a lot of people, if they have a choice, want to live in more spread out areas, which is usually why people get rich or get richer or become more affluent and move to those sorts of areas. You don't see a lot of time, you don't see a lot of affluent people who make their primary residence in dense urban areas. Maybe they'll have they, an apartment or a condo there, but they usually have like some sort of a retreat. Well, yeah, and even if the they do, they end up with like a very expansive penthouse or something right. like that. Not exactly they, what you would call dense. You're not packed into an apartment building. No, they they take up as much space in that urban area as they can. Right, and and so uh, even there, you run into the problem with people are gonna people have the opportunity. They're gonna spread out, right? Like if you can afford it, you're gonna spread out, and you don't. People don't want to choose to live like right on top of each other. And so I, I think that's one of the big challenges 
is we develop technologies like this that make commutes easier, that make it easier to spread out like that, because really that's what people want is to live spread out like that. But simultaneously, we try to promote public policy that gets people to try to close in together. I, I am not a big proponent of the approach to public policy that treats our communities like hamster cages, right, where we're going to put the running wheel over here, and we're going to do this over here, and then we're going to release the citizens into our hamster cage and expect them to live like hamsters. Well, I tell you what, if this becomes a more viable transportation option, we could potentially be saving billions of dollars in infrastructure because we wouldn't have to be maintaining paved roads. roads. And rails and rails and, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I've, you, know what's, you know what's funny? I've always kind of wanted to commute. Like, I watch shows, like, set in New York. And, you like, don't want to commute. People, people are like, I, just, I, don't, I like to read and stuff. I always thought it would be really cool to, like, be sitting on a commuter train, reading my Kindle, listening to my Spotify See, okay, see, I can, I can get behind the idea of wanting a public commute. I've enjoyed the idea of doing a commute on public transportation. You make, you make friends on the commute, right? Or, you can sit you and know, have I a half-hour conversation I can play with my them. video games or whatever, take my Switch with me. But yeah. commuting in, like, my car, because I have a 20-minute commute one direction right now, I think it's tiring. That's, that's less fun. No, I think it would be fun like, like to be on, like, a commuter train. Some, I don't know. For some reason, that's appealing to me. I don't know why. Dust subway. Yeah. <laughs> Jay Thomas Show straight ahead. Treasurer Kelly Schmidt joins me on air tomorrow. This is the Rob Report. You can catch me here 12 to 2 p.m. Monday through Friday, 24 hours a day, seven days a week at sayanythingblog.com. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again. Hey, hey,